you would please open your Bibles up at this time to the book of Titus. We um, have been preaching our pastoral, through the pastoral epistles for our sermon series, and we've been uh, taking an extended break for the holidays, so we preached a lot on the incarnation um, at Christmas time, then we did a New Year's sermon last week. Uh, but we're going to jump back into our pastoral epistles, um, and we are just about done. We're really, the end is ahead of us, as Titus is a very short book, and it's the last of the pastoral epistles. And we'll talk more about what that means in just a minute here. Um, but before we really open the text, read the text, walk through the text, anytime we transition into a new book of the Bible, uh, I want to always do at least some kind of introduction to the book to give us just a little bit of a cultural context to it. And, and some books require much lengthier introductions and some require much shorter ones. And so I think our time introducing the book will be brief today, um, but I still think the information is um, vital. And the way I like to do book introductions is I just follow that old famous journalism technique of the who, what, where, when, why, right? So that's kind of what we're looking at is the who, what, where, when, and why of the book of Titus. So I'm going to start with the what, and uh, this is part of what we call the pastoral epistles, and so that identifies for us the kind of literature it is. It's an epistle, which essentially just means it's a letter, Right, And this is important because in biblical interpretation, understanding the genre of the writing greatly influences how you interpret it. Right? If this was uh, poetic literature, we would not interpret it the same way. If this was prophetic literature, we would interpret it differently. If this was historical literature, we would again interpret it differently. So understanding that this was a personal letter written from one man to another man is important. So this is a letter. And, and, and most of the New Testament is compiled in, in um, what we we call epistles, uh, or maybe I shouldn't say most, but much of the New Testament is compiled in epistles, uh, letters that are exchanged from apostle to church, apostle to person, and the letters almost always have, one of the most important things about the letters is they're, they're usually didactic in nature. What does that mean? When something's didactic, it means there's a teaching element to it. Um, and so there, now obviously we believe that there's something to learn from every book in the Bible. Uh, there's always something we're learning, um, but, but specifically, typically it's the epistles that are really focused on um, very direct teaching. Here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to know, rather than just write a historical story like the book of Acts, for example. So this is a didactic letter. It's an epistle. And the who is, it's written by the apostle Paul um, as the both the past, all the three pastoral epistles are. You can look at chapter 1, verse 1, just briefly. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul gives a fairly, although he, he modifies it um, quite a bit, but he gives a fairly standard introduction and he identifies himself as the author. And so Paul is writing this and Paul is writing to, look at verse 4, to Titus my true child in a common faith. So that's why this is called Titus. The last two books in the pastoral, uh, pastoral epistles were First and Second Timothy. That was Paul writing to Timothy both times. And now we have a new recipient. Same author, new recipient. Paul is writing to Titus. Although there's a lot of overlap though. Um, Titus is similar to Timothy in many ways. Uh, the Titus is mentioned 
throughout the New Testament very often, actually. A lot of times it's in kind of the end of a letter in passing, so it's not typically the verses that you like memorize and store in your heart, but I think it's over 13 times he's mentioned. Um, so Titus is a companion of Paul. He traveled with Paul. He was at Paul's side through much of Paul's missionary journeys. Um, Titus was a, a faithful, beloved companion of Paul. And Paul, in verse 4, even describes him in the same kind of language that he described Timothy, which is a, ch- a true child in a common faith. So Paul sees himself as, as Titus's spiritual father. And so we know that this means that Paul was likely the one who preached the gospel to him. Um, Paul is probably the one that the Lord used to save Titus. But even if that's not the case, what is, we do know for sure is that Paul was Titus's mentor. He was the one training Titus, teaching him the faith. We call this in America today, we call it discipling, right? He was his disciple. He taught Titus how to be a disciple of Christ. And so because of this mentor role, he saw that as sort of being a spiritual father. And And so we have Paul writing to a trusted companion, a protege, if you will, uh, and a man who we will see in a minute, he's really training and expecting to be a pastor. So one pastor to another pastor, uh, father to son, metaphorically speaking. And then that brings us to the where. Where was this written? What's the important geographical context of what's going on here? Well, Paul was most likely writing this from prison. And you will uh, sort of prove that when we get to the when. So just hang on to that for a minute. But most likely, Paul was writing from prison. And we know where Titus was when he received the letter because of what verse 5 says. In verse 5, Paul says this, This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So Crete is um, a a little island in the Mediterranean Sea. So geographically, it's just north of Africa and it's just south of Greece. There's this little island in that sea in there and uh, that's Crete. And even today, it's still, it's it's owned by Greece and I think it's called Cretus today. Uh, So there's this little island, so obviously you have to get there by boat, and Paul says that he left Titus there. So this helps us with the timeline in a a couple different ways. So likely, what I have been teaching from the 2 Timothy and 1 Timothy is, I believe the most consistent way of understanding the timeline is the book of Acts ends with Paul being arrested after his third missionary journey, and I believe he entered into a fourth post-Acts missionary journey. So he was arrested in Acts, and then the book ends there. And I think Paul was released, he went on another missionary journey, and at some point in time, he went to Crete. And they preached the gospel there, and they planted a church there. And Paul left, but he kept Titus there to, to finish the work that he left. And then Paul gets imprisoned again, and then that's when he starts writing to Timothy and Titus. And one of the reasons that helps us really date this especially is we won't have to turn there, but if you'll recall from over a month ago, uh, in 2 Timothy, the, the letter ends, remember Paul's talking about all those who have deserted him? And he talks about how he's alone in prison and no one came to his defense. Well, some of his companions, the reason they weren't with him is he, Paul actually sent them. Remember, he said, I sent such and such to where? And he mentions Titus there. He says, I sent Titus to, does anyone remember off the top of your head? Dalmatia. It's not Crete. So where this puts this is, is Paul was most likely in prison because that's where he wrote to First and Second Timothy. We know he was in prison then. He makes that clear in those letters. And we know that this came after First Timothy but before Second Timothy. 
right? Because obviously Titus was in Crete when he wrote Titus, but Titus was not in Crete when he wrote 2 Timothy. He sent him somewhere else. And so the timeline here is we're looking at Titus probably was left in Crete, Paul gets imprisoned, and at some point in time, Paul gets a message to him to leave Crete, go to Dalmatia, uh, and then 2 Timothy is written sometime after that. So if you're looking for a really specific date, it's mid-60s, 62 to 65 AD. So we have an imprisoned Paul writing to his young protege, and that brings us to the why, which is important for identifying this as what we call a pastoral epistle, and the why again is in verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I have directed you. So basically, the reason Paul wrote this is, if we look at the circumstances, Titus has been left on a, relatively speaking, a fairly large island, right? It's small compared to the rest of the world, but when you're trying to um, oversee multiple churches, this is a lot of space and a lot of towns here. And Paul knew that he didn't have a lot of time to sit there and labor for years, teaching and preaching and helping. So Titus has kind of been thrown into the fire, so to speak, right? Paul went in and did his best, but he had to leave. And so he left Titus there to, to clean up and to fix and to continue to strengthen this group, to put into order what Paul left unfinished. And so we basically have a, a, a man, I don't know if he's as young as Timothy, but it's probably younger than Paul, um, who has really taken on a huge responsibility at Paul's request, and that responsibility was to be a pastor and to help appoint other pastors and sort of oversee many congregations that have been established in Crete. So Paul is essentially writing, this is why we call this a pastoral epistle. This is a letter giving Titus these important reminders that he needs to pastor churches. This is a pastor writing to a pastor and giving him reminders of what he needs to be doing in order to successfully bring this together. So that's why we call it a pastoral epistle is Paul's writing to a pastor and he's writing about the pastoral office, right? So that's our who, what, where, when, and why. We have Paul in prison writing to Titus and reminding Titus of the work and helping him in the work that he was left to do in Crete to oversee churches, appoint elders, and strengthen the believers that were left there when Paul left. However, uh, that leaves us plenty of time to dive into the text. I want us to actually break into the text. And so we're going to look at Paul's introduction for our text this morning. We're going to look at just verses 1 through 4. So if you would start back at the beginning and follow along with me, for these are the very words of God. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised beforehand before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Well, Paul's introduction there has many of the standard elements that Paul's introductions typically have, but this one is elongated. He adds a lot of extra detail in this that he's not accustomed to doing, and so we have to speculate as to why that is. And I think there's a couple of reasons. One of the themes we're going to see throughout Titus is the same theme we've seen in First and Second Timothy already, which is dealing with false teachers. So apparently Titus, as we're going to see, already has people in the church teaching false things, people likely outside the church teaching false things. And one of the themes we see really throughout the New Testament, when false teachers wanted to deceive the Christians, they went straight for the top dogs 
and tried to attack their very authorities. So for example, you can see in the book of 2 Corinthians, that whole book, well not the whole book, but the the latter end of the book is essentially Paul defending his apostolic ministry. So obviously what was going on is there were people who tried to deceive the Christians and they did so by attacking Paul. Is, Is Paul really a trusted authority? Or should we really be just giving our whole faith and our whole brains to Paul? And so I think Paul's lengthy introduction here is first and foremost to to remind Titus of his important role, of his authority over Titus and over that church. Because he doesn't just identify himself as a servant of God, which is, could be a re- reference to him as a pastor, but it's most likely the general reference that the word here is slave. And that's what Christianity is, right? We, we become slaves to the Lord Jesus. But he goes not so general, but more specific. And he begins on this short little rant about how he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then he breaks into talking about what the apostles do. What's the purpose of the apostolic ministry? So I think he's reestablishing his authority here. And I think that's also... Uh, probably cues us in that even though this is a personal letter written to Titus, I think certainly Paul had in mind this letter being read to the whole church. And so that's, I think, why we have this very formal introduction um, that's littered with a little bit more detail than normal. And it's specifically detail about what an apostle is and more specifically, what is the purpose of the apostolic ministry? What does Paul, what's his end goal in being an apostle? Why do we as Christians need the apostles? And that's what he, in a very brief summary statement, gives us. And so that's what we're going to look at for our sermon topic today. We're going to look at four things that Paul introduces. It's what I'm calling the apostles' purpose. This this is why we as Christians need apostles. And essentially what we're actually answering is why we need the New Testament. Right? Because the apostles are, they're dead. Right? They're gone. They've been dead for a long time. But... Because of the way God has miraculously preserved their literature, uh, it's still a true statement what Paul says that the church is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. Like we as Christians, if, if we want to be Christians, if we want to think true Christian thoughts, then we need to think thoughts after the prophets and we need to think thoughts after the apostles. And because we have their literature, they exist in our church every day, even though they're dead. And so, by answering this question, what's the purpose of the apostles? What, what are the apostles seeking to do with us? We're really answering the question, what does the New Testament, which is the apostolic revelation, what does the New Testament want from us? What does the New Testament want from you? What's the New Testament trying to do in the world? And I think we're really going to, in a summary statement, answer that. And I've boiled it down in this text. I think Paul's given us four things. Paul's given us faith, Knowledge, godliness, and hope. Faith, knowledge, godliness, and hope. That's what the Apostle Paul wants from you. He wants your faith. He wants your knowledge. He wants you to be godly, and he wants you to be hopeful. And so let's look at those one by one. Go back to verse one with me. Let's look at faith. The text reads, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake. Right? So he's telling us, I'm an apostle for this reason. Here's why I'm an apostle. Here's, here's what the apostles are all about. For the sake of the faith of God's elect. So the first and foremost reason that we need apostles, the first thing that the apostles are trying to get out of the world is they're trying to bring God's chosen people to faith. Right? Faith is, is, is the foundation of all the rest of our religion. 
This is why we see constantly in Scripture, faith is never the end point of our religion. It's always the beginning, right? You're, you don't get baptized after you've proven yourself for years and years and years, right? It's not as if baptism is at the end. You're baptized immediately. Whether you're a Presbyterian, it's very immediately. Or if you're a Baptist, it's a little bit later on. But still, even in both systems, baptism is the, the doorway into faith, It's the doorway into religion. Jesus says you baptize and then teach all that I have commanded. Faith is where we begin. Faith is foundational. Godliness and doctrine and theology, all this stuff, first and foremost, that matters. We'll get to that. But first and foremost, what the apostles want is they want people to come to faith. Paul says in, 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 when he writes to the Corinthians, he says that, speaking of the apostles, he says, we are ambassadors for Christ and we plead with you to be reconciled to God. The heart and soul of the apostolic ministry was to bring God's elect to faith so that by their faith they would be reconciled to God. He specifically mentions that group of the elect, right? Paul, Paul is not saying he knows who the elect are, but Paul is saying God has his people on earth. God has his people and we trust, we have the confidence that we have been commissioned as the apostles to bring those elect people, whoever they are, we have been called through our ministry to bring them to faith. It is the heartbeat of every book in the New Testament that you be reconciled to God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the heart and soul of the New Testament. It's the heart and soul, I would argue, of the whole Bible. And it's the heart and soul of the apostolic ministry that you would come to faith in Christ Jesus and enter into a right relationship with God the Father through him. The New Testament wants you to believe in Jesus. The New Testament wants you to put your faith in a great God. The apostles were apostles for the sake of the faith of God's elect. But notice he doesn't stop there. He does this interesting thing where he he, some, some people might think that he's, re- he's, he's elaborating on the concept of faith, but m- most of your English translations will make very clear he's actually adding an additional thing at this point. So not only was he an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect, but he was also for the sake of what? Their knowledge of the truth. You see, the apostles are not just interested in getting you into heaven. They're interested in truth holistically. The purpose of the apostles was to deepen our understanding of who God is, what God has said, and what God is doing, and what he has done. He wants us to enrich in our knowledge of the truth. So what Paul is essentially reminding us here is that every Christian is a theologian. The second you come to Christ, you become a theologian. What is theology? It's the study of God. And we tend to use the word theologian for the professionals. The seminary PhDs who are writing dissertations in big books, like those are the theologians. I'm just a mechanic. Those are the theologians. I'm just a doctor. No, if you have come to faith in Christ, you are a theologian because the apostles are interested in all of God's elect having a greater knowledge of the truth. God is interested in our intellect. It is very important for us to understand that even though this is characteristic of Western religion in general, Christianity, while it's many things, we need to understand is, is very much an intellectual faith. If, if you grew up in the Eastern part of the world, that would actually be controversial. Eastern religions tend to be much more mystical and spiritual and feeling-based 
But you see, Christianity throughout the New Testament has proven a faith that cares about truth. We care about what is true. We want to know what's true. Jesus himself, when he was being questioned by Pilate, when Pilate put him on trial, trying to get to the bottom of why the Jews wanted to kill him so much, Jesus doesn't say much to Pilate, but one of the things he says, and by the way, uh, the oldest New Testament manuscript that we possess, that we have in our possession, is Jesus' dialogue with Pilate, where he tells Pilate, I came into the world to testify to the truth. Jesus came into the world to be the greatest truth teller the world has ever known. That's why he described himself as not just merely testifying to the truth, but being the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You see, Christians need to understand that the history of our faith is not um, emotionalism, although we have emotions in our faith. But what built our faith was the rigorous, bold, courageous, intellectual work of the apostles who were willing to go into the towns, into the synagogues, and open up their Bibles and show the Jews you're wrong. The kind of courage that had Paul standing in Acts chapter 17 in the Areopagus where he was debating the world's greatest, most influential, most brilliant Greek philosophers and Paul had the audacity to stand in that arena and look at Plato's descendants, look at, look at Aristotle's descendants and say, you're wrong about what you say about the universe. You're wrong about God. Here's the truth. I can prove it. Christianity is a religion obsessed with the truth. We're obsessed with knowing the truth. And so the apostles care that we understand and believe true things. Our knowledge of the truth would increase. And, and so what this brings us into is we need to understand that knowledge of truth is basically a, a more simple way of talking about doctrine. We are a doctrinal people. And the reason, this might sound obvious to you, but I, I'm telling you, I really think that this is in many ways countercultural. Because it, it, it is a natural temptation. I've seen it my whole life. I've experienced it my whole life to sort of have an, an antagonistic approach to, to theology and doctrine. It's very easy to take on this mindset. Listen, I know enough to have gotten me saved. Right? Like, I know the gospel. I believed it and I'm saved. So isn't everything else kind of secondary at this point? Like, we have a world, I, I've heard language very similar to this, we have a world outside in Roswell right now. We have hundreds of people perishing. Hundreds of people who don't know God. Hundreds of people who don't have faith in Christ. So why would I waste my time sitting in a room, working through a dusty old textbook, filling my head with knowledge, when I can be out there preaching the gospel and helping people come to faith in Christ? I'm wasting my time with deep, irrelevant theology when I know the gospel and I want to get the gospel to other people. Now certainly we want to get the gospel to other people. But I want you to understand that the apostles did not view Christianity as this baseline, get yourself into heaven and then try to get everyone else into heaven. That's not Christianity. We do that in Christianity. I want to go to heaven. I want you to go to heaven. But Christianity is so much more than just getting ourselves into heaven. Paul wants us to have a deeper, more profound understanding of the truth. He wants us to be theologians, doctrinal people who strengthen our knowledge of the truth. True Christians, according to the apostle, are people who desire growth and learning. 
They're not offended when people want to dive deeper into God's word and understand him better. Our communion with God is enhanced and strengthened the better we know him. And so Paul was not just interested in our faith. He was interested in our minds. He's interested in our intellect. He wants us to know the truth. He wants us to have a deep knowledge of the truth. This is not to say that faith is not knowledge, right? Our faith is theological. Our faith is part of the knowledge we're trying to understand. But Paul separates them as sort of faith. You come to Christ first and then you build and then you can know truth. Jesus is the doorway to all truth. Paul wants our faith, but Paul also wants us to grow in our knowledge. He wants us to be theologians. He wants us to know doctrine. He wants us to know God better. And that's what the New Testament does. It tells us a whole lot about God, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he expects of us. It's not as if the New Testament just reads on every page, share the gospel, share the gospel, share the gospel. It's a theme, but there's a lot here. God wants us to know it. He wants us to enjoy him in our knowledge of the truth. So the apostles want the faith of God's elect. They want the knowledge of the truth in God's elect. But notice how he connects the knowledge of the truth with our next point, which is godliness. The ESV says, uh, beginning again at the beginning, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. And I like some of the other translations that bring that out a little bit more clearly that say that lead to godliness. In other words, as we just got done, theology and doctrine, this stuff matters. It's very important, but it's not an end in and of itself. Ultimately, our theology is a means to an end. The reason we want a greater understanding of truth, the reason we want a greater understanding of God is because from Paul's perspective, and this is a theme throughout the pastoral epistles, true belief will affect who we are. If you know the truth, the greater your knowledge is the truth is, that accords with godliness. That leads to godliness. Paul is interested in godliness. So we see now how much truth matters. How much theology matters because your life is greatly affected by what you think of God. And the more you know God, the more you know who God is, what he's done, and what he expects of us, the more equipped we are now to live godly lives. And this is the same reason why Jesus in, his, in the Gospels is constantly telling us to look at the fruits of people, to judge people by their fruits because Jesus knows that wicked hearts will produce wicked actions and deceived minds will produce wicked actions. But if our hearts have been purified and our minds have been enlightened, we can expect transformation and change. So we see that one of the important aspects of the New Testament, one of the important aspects of the apostles is that God's elect, that God's people would be godly. And I've said this many times before, and I don't think our church necessarily struggles with this, but I'll just say it again. We have to, as Christians, as evangelicals, be very careful that we don't ever allow our fear of legalism to silence our mouths from talking about godliness. Right? We, we want to maintain that we are not saved by works. Let me just be very clear by that. You are not saved by being a good person. You cannot earn your way into heaven. The Bible is very clear on that. Your works, the Bible says in the book of Isaiah, are filthy rags in front of a holy God. Even your best works are unimpressive to a holy and perfect God. You cannot earn your way into heaven. And there's lots of religions that teach that. And so sometimes we're so afraid of looking like we're teaching that, that we're afraid to ever talk about the importance of godliness. But if you read through the New Testament, Christians living godly lives is all over it. 
The apostles care very much about the actual, literal transformation of God's people. That the truth that we know, the faith that we have, does not just sit in our heads. But it actually works its way into our hearts and transforms us from the inside out. As a matter of fact, there's this old expression that Christians used to use. It's called orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Orthodoxy is a Greek Latin word that means ortho is sound or, or healthy and doxy is doctrine, faith. True faith, sound faith leads to orthopraxis or orthopraxy, which is healthy or sound practice. And we understand that what we know about God, what we know about truth affects the way we live. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Right theology re- leads to right living. If you get God wrong, everything else is going to be wrong after that. Just about. So you see, Paul is, the, the purpose of the apostles was not just to bring us to faith in Christ and be reconciled. It was not just to deepen our understanding of truth, but it was also to change who we are. The New Testament wants us to be transformed, to repent of sin, and to grow in holiness. That's why I think Charles Spurgeon said it best when he said, holiness is not the way to Christ. Christ is the way to holiness. Uh, we, we, don't, we don't clean ourselves up and make ourselves perfect and then Christ accepts us. No, it's once Christ accepts us, once we have faith, once we have a knowledge of the truth, now we can be holy. We're enabled and we know what to do. So we as a church, we always want to be a church that while we never preach a gospel of works, we always understand that works matter. They matter to God. Our lives matter to the apostles. And the New Testament is concerned with living right. We've seen that first in 2 Timothy, and it's really going to be hammered in Titus. We're going to have a lot of gospel, saved by grace, saved by faith, but we're also going to have a lot of command your people to do this and to do that and to not do this and abstain from this. Holiness matters. And then that brings us to our last point. So he's, the purpose of the apostles was to bring the faith of God's elect, was to deepen the knowledge of the truth in God's elect, and to incur, or to encourage holiness or godliness in God's elect. And then he says, all of this is done, verse 2, in hope of eternal life. It's almost as if he grounds all three of these things. It's, it's, it's like eternal life is the pillow that all of those other three things rest on. The hope of eternal life. We, we tend to call this in evangelicalism today, I notice, we tend to call this an eternal perspective. I hear that phrase a lot. Living with an eternal perspective. What, is, what does that mean? It means my focus is not necessarily today or here, but it's on the hope of eternal life that I have. And so there's this understanding of, of what we call eschatology, which is the study of end times, eschatology. We have an eschatological hope that affects the present, what I believe God is going to do with me and what I believe he's going to do with his people gives me the, the motivation, the encouragement I need to do everything else that Paul just got done talking about. I mean, at the end of the day, I don't want us to be too pragmatic, but I think this is kind of what Paul's getting at here. What good is faith, knowledge of the truth, and godliness if at the end of the day we have no hope? Paul himself says when he writes to the Corinthians, if, 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 if all we have is hope in this life, then we of all people are most to be pitied. He says, just eat, drink, and be married for tomorrow we die. None of this stuff really matters without any kind of eternal hope. But because God has promised us this great eternal hope that gives life and meaning to all those other things, we see how important it is that we live our lives with a secure hope of our eternal state. 
And, and I love this reminder that Christianity, ultimately, what are we offering to people? Verse 2, eternal life. Right? In our country, really in the world today, religion is very tribalistic. And that's natural. That's inevitable. It's going to happen. But what I mean by that is so often, religion is just sort of seen as this tribe versus this tribe and we want you on our team. Right? So there's these people and they believe this way and they live this way. That's their religion and their culture. And then over here we've got this people and they believe this way and they live this way and we're just trying to kind of get people to jump ship. Right? You should join our team. No, you should join their team. Well, you should join this team. And it's just like, sometimes it's, it's easy to think that we're just handing people, offering people just kind of a new set of ways of living. Right? Here's just a new philosophy on life. Here's a new way of living. And, and that's part of it. We are offering that in Christianity. But we have to see, above all, we are not just offering people lifeless religion. We're not just offering people a new philosophy or a new way of thinking or a new set of habits. We're offering life itself. I'm not interested in you just turning against your tribe and, and, and trying something new out. I want you to live forever. I want you to enjoy God, to join him in his glorious eternal life. He is offering for us to join in and live with him forever. You see, we're, we're offering more than just uh, propositions of truth. We want people to live. And that's the hope that we need to wake up with every single morning. Today might be hard, but Paul says, compared to the hope in front of us, it's momentary and it vanishes. It's light affliction, Paul says. That can sound condescending. We, we just read about a man who is leaving his family, leaving his wife, leaving his children, and he's going to spend nine years in prison. I lived in Alamosa for nine years before I moved here. To think of that entire time being in prison, folks, that's awful. And I didn't even have family and children. What he's, and, and, and make no mistake about it, Chinese prison ain't like American prison. Guys, he, he's about to, his life is ruined. This is going to be awful. It's going to be really bad. So how did we read such a statement that we heard from, from Jesse? Because he knows, you want to know what Paul would say if Paul were here? Believe it or not, you know what Paul would say to that pastor moments before they lock that prison cell for the next nine years? This affliction is light and momentary. That's his hope, that my life is not ruined. Why? Because all of my life I'm doing in hope of eternal life. You see how it just transforms everything. And this is what the apostles wanted to give people. You see, they were not offering people life free from persecution, affliction, and sadness. They were offering people a hope that can transcend and pull them through persecution, affliction, and sadness. Rome might kill you, and China might imprison you, and things are going to go wrong, but you have eternal life. And these are nothing but momentary light afflictions when compared, as Paul says, to the glory that is to be revealed. The, the, the apostles, the New Testament, were offering us life and life abundant. They were offering us a hope 
that perseveres through all struggles. He, he grounds that hope and he doubles down in, in how sure we can be by reminding us that this hope, this eternal life is a promise of a God who never lies and who made these promises before ages began, the end of verse 2. Now there's a lot there and so we're actually going to spend all, our entire time next week just in verse 2. There's a lot to unpack there. But I'll just say in, in summary of this point that what Paul wants us to understand is that this hope that we have, it's so important and he's saying, I know it's so important but don't worry, it's sure, it's fixed. God made that promise and he never lies. And that promise is not just some arbitrary, um, right, God's not just flying by the seat of his pants. This wasn't just some reactionary promise. These promises are grounded in this eternal, unchanging, cosmic, transcendental plan. And so he grounds, yes, you want to have hope for eternal life. You come to Christ, you've got it, it's yours, and that hope is never lost. God will never take his word back. He doubles down on the confidence we can have in our hope of eternal life. And again, we will unpack that more. But just to conclude, I want us to remind us of one more thing. He says in verse 3 that even though this promise of eternal life, the, the promise of God saving his people, even that promise is eternal, the knowledge of that was not eternal. Right? We had to be revealed this in time as God chose when and how he progressively revealed more and more of these eternal truths. And that's why Paul says in verse 3, And at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. And so here's how we conclude all this. Paul and the rest of the apostles were ultimately interested in bringing God's elect to faith in Jesus Christ, a deeper knowledge of the truth, living in holiness, and having an eternal hope. That's what the apostles wanted, and that's what the New Testament wants from us, and that's what the New Testament offers to you. And Paul says, how did we go about doing this then? How did we bring people to faith? How did we teach people the truth? How did we instruct people in godliness? How did we provide them with hope? What was the means we used to accomplish this? And Paul says, it happens through my preaching. Here's why that's so important to us. This is a, a last reminder before we conclude that we have to understand the importance of the Christian life of communicating the truths of the gospel. In other words, what I mean by that is works, living a good and righteous holy life is important for evangelism. The Bible talks in the book of Romans about how um, when Paul's talking to the Jews, he says the Gentiles mock our God and the reason they do that is because they see your hypocrisy. You preach one thing, but you live another way, and then it causes them to insult our God. So our gospel message is we try to take the New Testament and offer people faith, godliness, life, hope. As we try to offer all these things to people, if we don't live, as the book of Philippians says, in an accordance with the gospel, it will affect our, our message. So don't hear me saying works don't matter in evangelism. Works do matter in evangelism. But do hear me saying this, works are not evangelism. Works assist your evangelism, but works in and of themselves are not evangelism. Here's what I mean by that. Paul did not say, here's how I brought people to faith and godliness and truth and hope. I was just a really nice guy. I, I did like 10 service projects. And I had a new neighbor in my home every week and I fed them and I never made them pay. 
You will never nice somebody into the kingdom of heaven. Your life is not the gospel. If we want to see the people of Roswell have their eternal hope, we need to be ready to preach. There's this old expression, who it's been attributed to is actually debated. It's preach the gospel. When necessary, use words. That's not Paul's perspective. Paul did not believe he niced anyone into the kingdom of heaven. Paul would, if Paul were living today, he would say something more like, preach the gospel when necessary, use a microphone. At the end of the day, you want to know what separates us from the rest of the world? To some degree, it's our works. Like, Christians should be a light on a hill. We should be better people. Christians should be. But at the end of the day, I am comforted knowing that my neighbor's eternal salvation is not resting upon my goodness, my performance. Our hope is that what actually distinguishes us ultimately from all the other tribal competition is our God himself. It's a better message. It's a better God. We want to think of the gospel in those terms that I will live a holy life to buttress my gospel presentation, to assist and help my gospel presentation, but ultimately it's the gospel itself that's transforming people's hearts and minds. It's, it's is our God himself, who he is and what he's done, that's what's bringing people from darkness into light. You see, Paul did not come just to live a good life, although he did that, but he came to preach And all this revelation, the revelation of faith, knowledge, truth, and hope, this was revealed ultimately through the apostles preaching and teaching. Notice, God didn't leave us a very big manuscript and all their good works. Most of what we have from the apostles is their teaching, their doctrine, their proclamation. So we need to be reminded by Paul's apostolic purpose that transformation ultimately comes through the proclamation of the gospel. And our lives matter in that. Our lives affect that. But our lives are not saving people. The gospel is bringing them into right relationship with God. So in conclusion, here's what I want to do. I just want us to take some time for personal self-reflection. Right? This is not judgmental. This is not shame on you, shame on us. I just, I just want us to, to, to as individuals, to, to really ask ourselves and bathe in these questions. First and foremost, where's your faith? What are you trusting in? Have you found salvation in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone? Are you believing on Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins? Are you trusting that he is your only access to God the Father and into the hope of eternal life? If that is not where your faith is, hear it from me in the same way that Apostle Paul pled, hear me pleading with you, be reconciled to God. Come to faith in Christ. Even if you already are a believer, I ask just simply, how's your faith doing? Are you hanging by a thread? Are you questioning the goodness of God? Are you not feeling his love every day? I would just simply remind you of your eternal hope. I'd remind you of what Christ has done for you. Strengthen your faith, weary believer. Where's your faith? Let me ask you this. Do you have a desire to know more of God and his word? Do you hunger for truth? Do you care about knowing our God more and understanding his revelation more? Are you content to just get into heaven? Do you hunger for more of God? Do you hunger for truth? 
Let me ask you this. Uh, to quote John Owen, are you mortifying sin? Are you killing sin every day? Do you make it your day's goal every morning you wake up to put your sin to death and to walk in godliness? Or are we content to say, listen, I'm saved by grace so I can do whatever I want. I can live how I want because God saved me by grace. Or are we going to do the work of, through the power of the Spirit, putting our sin to death, using the accountability of our loved ones and our church to fight sin, to be godly? Do we pursue holiness? I ask you, are you living with an eternal perspective? One English Puritan was put to death one time persecuted and his wife was interviewed and she was asked if she was upset with God that her husband was taken so early in life and she responded by saying he lived far too much in heaven to live long out of it. He lived, even when he was here, he was thinking about that. Do you have an eternal hope that sustains you in all that you do? Do you have eternal hope that gives life and fuel and energy and optimism to the work of the Lord here? Do you have a hope beyond this life or is your hope, are you living as if your hope is only in this life? I would encourage you, whatever is hurting you, whatever is discouraging you, whatever is bearing on your soul and making you feel like life just isn't worth it, let me remind you that in Christ Jesus, these are light momentary afflictions. And you have a hope ahead of you. And lastly, I just simply ask, are we ready to share the gospel? Are we ready to preach? Are we prepared, as Peter says, to always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within you? Are we ready to articulate what it is that Jesus has done and who he is with the world around us? Are we ready to, like the apostles, be bold and preach the gospel? Do we, do we even desire opportunities to preach the gospel or do we just go through our lives hoping I don't run and bump into someone today? I hope I don't have to talk to someone today. That's easy for us, right? I just want to be comfortable and just go through my day. Just, it amazed me just yesterday, was it yesterday? Layla and I went to Walmart and uh, the lines were really long and I just remember sitting there being so frustrated and uncomfortable. There was a football game on. I just, and I was just like, I was just like feeling bothered that there was people around me. Like I just want to go home and be alone. I thought that was never Jesus's perspective. Jesus is never like, all oh, these people. Do, do, do we even desire to cross paths with someone and have that opportunity to give them life? Where's your faith? Where's your hunger for God's word? Are you mortifying sin? Are you living with an eternal perspective? And are you ready and excited to have the privilege to share the gospel? You see, that's what the New Testament wants from us. That's what the apostles want from us. They want your faith. They want your mind. They want your life. They want your hope. And they want us to be a people with the gospel on our lips.